From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Two House committee chairs say they'll investigate President Trump's removal of the Acting Transportation Department Inspector General. Former Acting IG Mitch Benn will stay in his job as Deputy IG. The White House says the Administrator of the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, Howard Elliott, will replace Benn as Acting IG. Eric Soskin, an attorney at the Justice Department, is the nominee to be the permanent IG at Transportation. Another Transaction Authority contract from the Defense Innovation Unit will have Google Cloud build a security portal to hunt cyber threats across multiple clouds. DIU Cyber Portfolio Director Jeff Kleck tells FCW the project will let the department tighten security and control in commercial clouds. The department will run services and applications through the portal to clouds from other providers. The Defense Information Systems Agency will run a pilot program to let Pentagon personnel take their personal devices into secure facilities. The pilot would let employees bring approved devices in a case that blocks sensors on the phone. FCW reports the Air Force is already piloting the program. In-person appeals hearings are on hold now as the Department of Veterans Affairs tries to keep service on track for vets. VA can do 640 virtual hearings a week now. Cheryl Mason is chairman of the Board of Veterans Appeals. Cheryl, welcome back. It's nice to see you. How is the coronavirus affecting the way that you're delivering service to vets, and how is it affecting the pace at which you're able to deliver service to vets? Hi, Francis. Thanks for having me today. Um, the board's mission, as you know, is to issue here issue decisions and hold hearings. And so we are very agile. We were able to adjust in a week and a half and move our very robust telework program into a 99% telework program of our staff. And so uh, the board team has continued to decide cases for veterans and hold hearings, as you mentioned, through the virtual process. We also were able to uh, expand our advance on the docket procedures and consider those cases for those veterans that with impacts of COVID to get those decisions done quicker. And um, we understand that, that some veterans will need more time. And we, so we were able under our regulations to extend timelines under good cause exceptions. So those are some things we're working on and continuing to work on for our veterans. To date, the board has decided over 67,000 decisions in uh, FY20. What are you learning about these virtual hearings that will work for VA after the COVID issue is not as much of an issue anymore? What, how, how are you taking what you're learning and applying it to what the next normal might look like, Cheryl? Well, new normal is always changing. And as it changes, we have to adapt. And, and as I said, the board's very agile at that. So uh, on April 10th, the president signed the VA Telehearing tele Modernization Act, which allowed veterans to choose their location for hearings. The board was already testing our, tele our virtual telehearings, uh, which is built on the telehealth uh, pro platform. And so this enabled us to really push um, our vi virtual hearings out. And so since, um, since March, 
since the end of March when we had to suspend our in-person hearings. We have held over 650 hearings um, and a total to date of 989 hearings. Virtual hearings will be part of our hearing opportunities for veterans. And the, the one thing we are learning the most is the veterans really appreciate the ability to hold them uh, in their homes with their, with their electronic devices. They don't have to travel. Uh, once, once they understand they can do that, they are very thrilled. And we've had multiple stories of veterans who uh, have been very thankful to be able to hold their hearing and move their decision along during COVID. And that's kind of where I wanted to go next. What's your sense of the uptake? What, what feedback, what data do you have on the feedback on from veterans, from your customers, basically, on, on how they feel about this service, what they think of it? Well, that's, that's a great um, point, Francis, because one of the things we do is we work very closely with our veteran service organizations, uh, both national, state, and local. And we have been uh, working, having meetings with them through the video technology to show them the process. And once they see the process, they really uh, appreciate it. They understand the board team is there to help them and their veterans. And like I said, the veterans who have had these hearings, we've had hearings with veterans in uh, Hawaii, in Europe, in Japan, and they all very much appreciate it. We run surveys with our veterans and we are in the process of gathering that feedback and making further improvements. That's one thing the board and the department is committed to is, is with our customer experience office is uh, using the feedback to make improvements. How are you going to serve vets who decide this isn't for me, I would like to do this in person, like to do it the old fashioned way, obviously they can't now. What's that look like for those folks, Cheryl? Well, we, we understand that, that many of our veterans are just not comfortable with the technology process or for whatever reason want to come to the regional office or the VHA facility and hold a hearing. And so what we've made uh, a promise to those veterans is that they will be prioritized if they've already had a hearing scheduled and we had to postpone due to COVID. They will be uh, first in line for our videos when we start holding those again when when VBA opens the regional offices and uh, when we start travel boards uh, those veterans will be prioritized as you know we the board works cases in docket order and that includes our hearings so those with the oldest docket who want a hearing who don't want a virtual hearing we will always hold their hearing for them as soon as we can get to them we have about 30 seconds left cheryl what will you take out of this for after COVID is not as much of a threat what will this process look like when COVID is is gone and your offices reopen again I expect after COVID is gone that we're going to see a significant uptake in our virtual hearings as part of our hearing platform. Much as we've seen in VHA's telehealth, that area has exploded. And I think that veterans through this process and family members have become much more comfortable with the uh, technology process of it. And I expect that we'll be doing a lot more virtual hearings, which will enable us to save some funds and get their cases out the door as quickly as we can in the process. Cheryl Mason, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to see you again. Thanks. Thank you, Francis. Up next, empty seats at inspectors general offices all across government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the pattern of firing IGs and what's in store for oversight in government. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The latest inspector general the White House has fired or reassigned or declined to promote is at the Department of Transportation. Acting Inspector General Mitch Bem will stay on as deputy IG, but the White House has a new acting IG there and a new nominee for the permanent job. Robert Shea is a principal at Grant Thornton Public Sector. He's former associate director at the Office of Management and Budget. Robert, what do you see as you look across this landscape and see all these changes in the inspector general community? Well, you know, that position is designed to, to be reporting to the agency head and to the Congress. So it, those individuals are already in a very difficult position, but that's intended to give them a degree of independence. If their uh, appointments are terminated, if we have continuing acting inspectors general, that puts a chill on the extent to which they think they can dig into areas of accountability that, that need oversight. The chill on the accountability means what specifically regarding the, uh, the way that an IG does oversight? Because I get a sense from what I saw, for example, coming out of Glenn Fine's office at the Department of Defense and other agencies that had acting inspectors general, I didn't get a sense that they were not investigating sensitive topics or not investigating things that somebody in leadership in the agency didn't want them to. There were, they were hitting some pretty sensitive veins of information, it struck me. That's right. I, I, I expect a lot of good work is being performed by inspectors general of all varieties. But if you continue to see inspectors general who are appointed to broader oversight uh, uh, committees, like in the case of Glenn Fine and the Pandemic uh, Recovery Accountability Committee, or in the State Department IG, if, if those positions, if those individuals continue to uh, be fired or relegated to lower level positions, um, then you'll see the the inspectors general will think twice about um, inspecting or investigating or auditing more sensitive areas, lest they be fired. Um, if if these firings occur and no one's held accountable for it, then um, I, I don't see what recourse inspectors general have if their investigative or audit efforts are resisted. The State Department uh, IG situation is interesting because uh, Mr. Linick apparently was investigating Secretary Pompeo. Secretary Pompeo said yesterday, I didn't know that he was investigating me when I decided to ask the president to remove him. Is that possible? I mean, he, he said he was he was answered questions from Mr. Linick's office about a number of issues. Doesn't the, the, the leader of an agency normally know what projects, what investigations and audits an IG is undertaking? Well, I mean, it depends on the sensitivity of the investigation. You and I could be uh, being investigated at this very moment and not know it. Uh, I know it's different with an agency head. Generally, an inspector general has an audit and investigation plan that they vet with their superiors and Congress. Uh, but as ma sensitive matters come up, they can deploy resources that, um, uh, that, that investigate those matters on a pretty um, rapid basis. So it, it's conceivable that the secretary didn't know every specific audit or investigation that was going on. It would surprise me if he didn't know that he was being investigated, especially if he was responding to questions on the matter.
Former inspectors general have signed a letter to Congress saying uh, two main things. You should make every inspector general Senate confirmed and you should make every inspector general's term five years. Does that solve these problems, Robert? It, it, you, the White House would still have to nominate people for the vacant positions. Well, it, if we're not reluctant to fire inspectors general without cause, then making them all Senate confirmed and lengthening their terms won't really make a difference. So we have to restore a sense of respect for the, the, the institution of the inspector general and the controls we have in place to ensure their independence before things like that will really have an impact. Would the same rules of cause apply to the inspector general community, the, uh, the inspector general position that apply to every other federal employee? I mean, is this something that would come down to the Office of Special Counsel and the Merit Systems Protection Board? No, I, these are uh, political appointees. They serve at the pleasure of the president. Uh, and, and imposing these controls is actually uh, constitutionally suspect, limiting the president's authority to hire or fire those uh, uh, presidentially appointed Senate-confirmed individuals um, has always been controversial. So you're seeing the, the both sides really testing these, um, th these limitations on firing that, that have been in place for so long, and I'm not sure just exactly what it'll take to restore them. We have about 30 seconds left, Robert. You said a few moments ago, if somebody's not held accountable, this could continue to happen. Who needs to be held accountable? Is it just the president, since President Trump's the person who can decide whether somebody should be fired or kept on? Well, we, we should find out whether or not there was genuine cause for the firings that we're seeing. The number of them seems to su suggest a pattern beyond uh, cause. Uh, so, and, and should there be political or other inadequate reasons for the firings, then yes, it is the administration that should be held accountable for these inappropriate actions. Robert Shea, thanks very much as always. Great to have you on the program. Up next, data driving the Government Accountability Office's high-risk list. Straight ahead on Government Matters, Government Data Pioneer Chris Mim on what's coming next. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The last 14 high-risk lists from the Government Accountability Office have saved the government more than $520 billion. The GIPRA Modernization Act has brought government management into the 21st century. Chris Mim is Managing Director of Strategic Issues, GAO. He was instrumental in both the high-risk list and the GIPRA Modernization Act, and he's a finalist for a Service to America medal in the Management Excellence category. Chris, thanks very much for coming on the program. Take me quickly through the GIPRA uh, the original uh, piece of legislation and the Modernization Act and your involvement with those and how it's delivering what you wanted it to deliver as you thought about this stuff and worked with others to make them happen. Sure thing, and and it's it's great to see you, and it's it's great to be back on the the program, Francis. Is that the the original GPRA from uh, 1993 
for the first time, put in place requirements for agencies to actually develop strategic plans and to be thinking in a long term about the, the outcomes, the results that they want to achieve, to have annual performance plans, to be have performance measures, and to be reporting on their performance. Up until that point, we, we really didn't have that or certainly didn't have any requirements to do that, and our work had shown that agencies were not doing that. The Modernization Act of, of 2010, what it sought to do was to get a more integrated and cross-cutting approach to thinking about federal performance and to get to just the, the volume of performance information that's now being generated, to get it to actually be used. And, and that was a, a big challenge. We're generating a lot of information. We're not actually using it to drive decisions. And then again, on the integrated approach is that all the problems that we're trying to deal with as a society aren't gonna be caught or aren't gonna be you know, solved by one agency operating in isolation. It's gonna be all patterns of agencies working together collaboratively in the networks. That's what the Modernization Act was seeking to, to incentivize. In the time that we have today, I, I, we can't get into all of the details about the results that you've seen in the 10 years since, but is it encouraging to you, Chris, that pretty much everything that we see, the president's management agenda, uh, the, the, agent, the individual agency strategic plans, uh, the use of data, all of that is really aligned to the principles of the Gipper Modernization Act. That's a good thing, isn't it? Yes, very much, and and certainly the the president's management agenda, both in the Trump administration and obviously back in, in Obama and George W. Before then, were focusing on a on a consistent set of themes. They each had their their different points of emphasis, but a consistent set of themes for how we can deal with some of the longstanding management challenges that people uh, that uh, agencies have, whether it be in in IT or human capital issues or supply chains, um, and and how do we make sure that those those uh, solutions to those management issues are aligned with the results that we want to achieve. That's been the beneficial thing we've seen there. And then even more recent legislation, the Evidence Act, for example, that has that's telling agencies that they need to put in place learning agendas to, to really be thinking about what do we need to do, know from an outcome standpoint and how are we going to gather that information and use that information in order to better inform our decisions. Those are all very positive developments. I want to shift to the high-risk list in the time that we have left, Chris, because I think the focus both on this program and, and other outlets when the high-risk list comes out each time is on what's going on to the high-risk list and maybe the more focus should be on what comes off. I note in the summary mm -hmm. of your uh, selection as a finalist from the partnership, um, successful reforms, this says, led to the removal of the DOD's supply chain management system and NOAA's um, weather satellite data system coming off the high-risk list last time around. That's a pretty big deal when something makes enough progress that you feel it's no longer a high risk. Yeah, the, the, both of those came off, as you mentioned, in the 2019 list. Uh, 2017 list, we took off uh, sharing of uh, terrorist-related information across the uh, across the government, and and these are there, there's a couple of big lessons that we we take from that 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 other issues that are on the high risk can also learn from, and that is the that the the importance of top-level attention, the importance to, to to solving the problems, the importance of having in place the, the capacity to actually get that done, uh, an action plan, uh, monitoring the, the your progress against that action plan and then being able to show sustainable results against that uh, against your action plan when you have those five in place and it's hard to do i mean if these were easy issues they wouldn't be high risk they would have been solved a long time ago this this is hard to do but it, the, the beauty of this is it shows that you can get off the high risk list and and as you mentioned at the outset there's you know in the last 14 years alone half a trillion dollars in in financial benefits from progress that has been made on on high risk issues and it's and so that's that's 
real. And that's uh, th those are those are big achievements. And that's just what we've been able to monetize. There's obviously hundreds of other uh, achievements, other benefits to the American people that we we don't monetize. And so it's it's a big deal to to make progress if you're on the high risk list and to get off if you are on it. Uh, we have less than a minute left, Chris. Is there any low-hanging fruit left for organizations that are on the high-risk list and they're trying to get off? Or are these such big, hairy problems that they really are moving rocks up a hill really, that, that are really difficult? Well, they're, they're certainly moving rocks up the hill that are very difficult. I guess if there's a, a, a low-hanging fruit or one that we would an area that we would really urge all agencies, whether you're on high-risk list or not, to give attention to, and that's to your mission-critical skills gaps, is that over half of the issues, of, of the 35 issues on the high-risk list, a mission-critical skills gap is a root cause of the reason that they're on there. And, of course, one of the high-risk areas is government-wide uh, mission-critical skills gaps. And so to the extent that agencies can make sure that they have human capital plans that are integrated systematically into the mission outcomes that they want to achieve, that's when you're really going to get progress, not just on high-risk areas, but just on, on any management challenge that an agency faces. Chris, I always love talking to you about these issues and uh, want to close with one final thought from your big boss, uh, Gene Dodaro. I, I know a few people that are more widely respected than him, and he said about you, I've been working at GAO for 47 years, and Chris is one of the most successful, effective senior executives we've ever had. Congratulations on being selected as a finalist for a Sammy. It's great to talk to you, Chris. Thank you, sir, and it's, it's great to talk with you, Francis, and, and do take care of yourself. I'm Cherise Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.